and one that provides a few hours' entertainment and is soon forgotten. I could simply end on that note and be telling nothing less than the truth, after announcing that here is another one to enjoy, to remember, and then get out of your way and let you read it. But life is short, good writers are a minority group, and opportunities to talk about them are few, unless you are a critic or a reviewer, neither of which hats fit me. And there is another thing about writing and Fred which seems worth saying here. Raymond Chandler once observed that there are plot writers, such as, say, Agatha Christie, who work everything out in advance, and then there are others, such as himself, who do not know everything that is going to occur in a story beforehand, who enjoy leaving leeway for improvisation and discovery as they go along. I've written things both ways myself, but I prefer Chandler's route, because there is a certain joy in encountering the unexpected as you work. I've compared notes on this with Fred, and he is also of the Chandler School. If this tells you nothing else in terms of the psychology behind some people's creations, it at least lets you know which writers are probably having the most fun. And this is important. There are days when such a writer curses the freeform muse, but the reconciliations are wonderful, and the work seldom seems a mere chore. It is good to know that beyond the place of Fred's versatility, and even beyond that special metaphysical locale where occurs the careful tightening of all story strands into total self-consistency, there in the secret place where he puts things together for the first time, all alone and wondering and working hard, he has this special on-the-spot joy in associating the stuff of life and ideas. For some of this, I believe, does come through to the reader in all good writing that happens in this fashion. I feel it in all of Fred's stories. If further confirmation of the versatility of Fred Saberhagen were needed, here is Empire of the East. In this unusual collaboration with his earlier self, he has produced a fine mix of fantasy and science fiction, action and speculation. Book One the Broken Lands. 1. Hear me, Ecumen. The satrap Ecumen's difficulties with his aged prisoner had only begun when he got the fellow down into the dungeon under the castle and tried to begin a serious interrogation. The problem was not, as you might have thought from a first look at the old man, that the prisoner was too fragile and feeble, liable to die at the first good twinge of pain. Not at all. It was almost incredible, but actually the exact opposite was true. The old man was actually too tough. His powers still protected him. All through the long night, he not only defended himself, but kept trying to hit back. Ecumen's two wizards, Elslud and Zarf, were adepts as able as any that the satrap had ever encountered west of the Black Mountains far too strong for any lone prisoner to overcome, especially here on their own ground. Yet the old man fought, in pride and stubbornness perhaps, and doubtless with the realization that his fighting could cause powers so enormous to be arrayed against him, could create a tension so great, that his inevitable collapse would bring him sudden and relatively painless death. The intensity of the silent struggle mounted all through the darkest morning hours, when human powers are known to wane, and others may reach their peak. Ecumen and his wizards, 
could not identify the particular forces of the West that the old man called upon, but certainly they were not trivial. Long before the end, the air within the buried dungeon seemed to Ecumen to be ringing audibly with powers, and his human eyesight misinformed him that the ancient vaults of the stone ceiling had elongated and receded into some mysterious distance. Zarf's toad familiar want to jump with glee during the interrogation of stubborn prisoners, had taken refuge in a puddle of torchlight near the foot of the ascending stair, for once wanting nothing to do with the dark corners of the chamber. It crouched there solemnly, goggle-eyes following its master as he moved about. Elslud and Zarf took turns standing on the rim of the pit, three meters deep, at whose bottom the old man had been chained. They had with them talismans of their choice, and had drawn signs on floor and wall. They, of course, could gesture freely, though on the level of physical action the struggle was very quiet, as was to be expected when it involved wizards of this rank. While one of Ecumen's magicians took his turn at maintaining the pressure, the other stood back before the satrap's elevated chair, conferring with him. They were all sure that the old man was a leader, perhaps the very chief, of those who called themselves the Free Folk. These were bands of the native populace, reinforced by some stiff-necked refugees from other lands, who hid themselves in hills and coastal swamps, and carried on an unremitting guerrilla warfare against Ecumen. It was only through a stroke of fortune that a routine search operation in the swamps had netted the old man. Zarf and a troop of forty soldiers had come upon him sleeping in a hut. Ecumen was beginning to believe that if the old man had chanced to be awake, they might not have taken him at all. Even with the prisoner at his present disadvantage, Elslud and Zarf together had not even managed to learn his name. Down in the pit the guttering torchlight flashed with unusual brightness from chains that were of no ordinary metal. Blood puddled darkly at the old man's feet but not a drop of it was his. Lifeless before him, one of Ecumen's dungeon wardens lay. This man had approached the chained wizard incautiously, to be surprised when his own torture-knife whipped itself out of its sheath to fly up and bury its dull blade to the hilt in its owner's throat. After that, Ecumen had ordered all his human servitors, save the two wizards, from the chamber. Later, when the prisoner had begun to display small but unmistakable signs of weakening, Ecumen considered having the wardens in again, to try what little knives and flames might do. But the wizards advised against it, pleading that the best chance for a cruel prolongation of agony, for extracting useful information from the victim, lay in finishing by the powers of magic alone the process they had begun. Their pride was stung. The satrap thought about it, and let his wizards have their way, while he sat attentively through the long hours of the test. He had a high wall of a forehead and a full, darkish beard. He wore a simple robe of black and bronze, his black boots shifted now and then upon the stone floor. Only when the night outside was drawing to its end, though day and night in here were all the same, did the old man break silence at last. He spoke to Ecumen, and the words evidently formed no spell, for they came clearly enough through the guarded air above the torture pit. When, toward the end of the speech, the victim's breath began to fail, 
Ekumen stood up from his chair and leaned forward to hear better. On the satrap's face at that moment was a look of politeness, as one simply showing courtesy to an elder. Hear me, Ekumen. The told familiar crouched lower, becoming utterly motionless at the sound of those first words. Hear me, for I am Ardna. Ardna, who rides the elephant, who wields the lightning, who rends fortifications as the rushing passage of time consumes cheap cloth. You slay me in this avatar, but I live on in other human beings. I am Ardna, and in the end I will slay thee, and thou wilt not live on. Given the circumstances, Ekumen knew no alarm at being threatened. The word elephant, though, caught his attention sharply. He glanced quickly at his wizards when it was uttered. Zarf's and Elslud's eyes fell before his, and he returned his full attention to the prisoner. Pain showed now in the prisoner's face and sounded in his voice. Defenses crumbling, powers failing, he was quickly becoming no more than an old man no more than another victim about to die. He labored on with croaking speech. Hear me, Acumen. Neither by day nor by night will I slay thee, neither with the blade nor with the bow, neither with the edge of the hand nor with the fist, neither with the wet nor with the dry. Acumen strained to hear more but the old lips had ceased to move. Now only the flicker of torchlight gave the illusion of life to the victim's face, as it did to the face of the dead torture.